But let's open up in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we come together on this day, we want to worship You. We want to look to You for truth, for counsel and guidance in how to live our life, and for help. For help in healing our bodies and showing us how to live and and, and touching us, Lord, when, when we need to be touched and encouraging us when we need to be encouraged. Father, this is the day that we set aside to look at You and ask You for Your truth, Your help, Your grace, Your mercy. I pray, Lord, that as we study Your Word now and as we close the service with prayer, that You would just be with us, that You would show Yourself true as our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Uh, today, we are not going to be looking at a screen or filling in a blank because this isn't the study for it. Um, our study this morning in Mark is, as we've been studying uh, the Gospel of Mark throughout these last few weeks, is coming to a climax at the crucifixion. And this is a message that it's, it's, uh, it needs to be experienced um, and not have a, a fill-in-the-blank, as I said. This is a message that I just want us to read and to meditate on and to, to, uh, to consider in our hearts the implications of it. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you and turn to Mark chapter 15. And we're going to be uh, starting in verse uh, 16. But before, before we do, I know you all know of the, uh, the lifeboat illustration. Uh, where you have a, a number of people on a boat and uh, you, you're, you're asked to save uh, you're asked to save all but one in the lifeboat, and your task as a group is to try to figure out of the five people in the boat uh, which four are going to be saved and which one is going to perish. I remember doing that exercise in junior high and high school. We would get into groups and we would be given uh, five names. Usually it was their, their work. We would be given a doctor, you know, a, a lawyer, a businessman, and so on and so forth. And we would have to choose out of those five on the lifeboat which four are going to be saved and which one are we going to throw overboard. It's kind of a, a cruel and grotesque exercise, actually. How many of you have ever done that exercise before? Okay, a few of you, so I'm not alone in this. Um, but I was thinking the other day, too, you know, uh, from a parent perspective, um, if a parent and a child were in danger, um, if a parent and child were on the lifeboat, so to speak, and there was only one life jacket left, I have no doubt what a parent would decide. A parent would always decide in that situation with one life jacket and the option between himself or herself and their child, I have no doubt what a parent would decide. They would always give that life jacket to their child. They would always give up their life for their child's life. It would be instinctual. They wouldn't have to think about it. If there was only one person that could be saved out of parent and child, the parent would always choose to save their child. And as we look at Mark chapter 15 today, Jesus is given the option of saving Himself or saving another. 
and not just one other, but millions upon millions upon millions of others. And despite the taunts from the crowd around Him that look up at Him on the cross and say, why don't you just save yourself now? You saved others now. Why don't you save yourself? Jesus is going to remain silent and He's going to accept His death, His destruction, so that He can save others. Take a look at Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. It says this, Then the soldiers led Jesus away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed Him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, and they put it on His head, and they began to salute Him, Hail, King of the Jews. The Praetorium was the court, the court area of Pilate's compound. It was the inner court of the governor's residence. And Pilate had by now condemned Jesus to die. The crowd had encouraged him to do so. And he uh, had cowardly agreed to their request. And so he commissioned his entire garrison, which was somewhere between 300 and 600 men. And they brought Jesus to that inner courtroom of his uh, house. And they began to beat and mock Jesus. They took off all His clothes, as was custom for those being crucified. And, but instead of beating Him uh, in the nude, they, they clothed Him with a purple robe to mock the idea that Jesus was a king. So they put this purple robe upon Him and they began to beat Him with the cat of nine tails that we spoke of last week. They put a crown of thorns upon Jesus. I don't think this was without uh, great significance as we look back over Scripture. You see, they put a crown of thorns on the one who was reversing the effects of the curse. They put a crown of thorns on the one who was reversing the effects of the curse. When Adam sinned, among the many consequences that befell him was that as he tilled the ground, as he brought forth fruit and food from the ground, because of his sin, now it was indicated in Genesis chapter 3 that he would have to deal with thorns and thistles. That the ground would, not, would no longer be easy to till. It would no longer be easy to farm. Because of Adam's sins, there would be thorns along with the fruit. There would be thistles along with the grain. And no longer would farming be as effortless as it had been for Adam. And so as Jesus is, has a crown of thorns upon His head, it's not without irony. He wore it as a symbol of the sins that were laid upon Him by you and me. He carried the curse upon His head. And they mocked Him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. A mocking uh, rendition of Hail, Caesar. They began to beat Jesus. Take a look at verse 19. It says, Then they struck Him on the head with a reed and spat on Him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped Him. And when they had mocked Him, they took the purple off of Him 
and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Our Lord was uh, was beaten unmercifully. He was mocked incessantly. It's interesting that after having beaten him uh, with the purple robe on, uh, in any case, they took the robe off and put his own clothes back on. Uh, That is again significant. It's it's, it's, uh, estimated by scholars based on a variety of historical evidence, other writings and whatnot from ancient ancient works, that... uh, that the, the one being crucified would be disrobed throughout the entire process. Throughout the scourging, the beating, um, throughout the walking, the taking of His cross up to the point of crucifixion, and upon the cross, the person would traditionally be uh, left naked. But they put Jesus' clothes back on Him. And they estimate that the significance of this is that He had received such a beating in the Praetorium that Jesus had been so uh, bloodied and so beaten and so broken that they were not going to beat Him along the road to the crucifixion place, which was what traditionally they had done. That they were no longer going to whip Him anymore because He couldn't even carry the cross. And so they re-robed Jesus and He began to walk with the cross upon His shoulder, but soon, of course, He would need some help. Take a look at verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. Jesus couldn't bear the cross in his, on His own strength. And so, they asked another man to bear the cross. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya. Uh, it's, uh, so this man would have been a, most likely a North African Jew uh, who had come to Jerusalem as, uh, to take part in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, he was perhaps a part of a, a small contingency of North African Jews. And, and Mark names him by name, as does Matthew and Luke. But he also names his sons. Alexander and Rufus. And uh, we're not quite sure who, uh, who the sons are, but the fact that Mark indicates their names um, might suggest that the group to whom Mark was writing knew Alexander and Rufus. And in fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, in the book of Romans, which is exactly where Mark is writing his Gospel, Uh, In fact, in Romans 16.13, there is a man named Rufus who Paul greets. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So apparently, the the group to whom Mark was writing perhaps knew of these sons. And so, Mark and Paul both made mention of them. But let's not lose sight of what Simon is doing. Simon is carrying the cross for Jesus. He is doing literally what we're called to do figuratively. And that is to bear the cross. Simon is doing literally what you and I are called to do figuratively. And that is bear the cross. 
Jesus said back in Mark 8, Whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for My sake in the Gospels will save it. Simon, friends, is, is he's an example. It was, it was one verse in the Gospel of Mark. It was one verse in the Gospel of Matthew. It was one verse in the Gospel of Luke that, that Simon has mentioned. And it seems so trivial and so insignificant. You might wonder, why in the world would the Gospel writers choose to select this insignificant moment uh, to, to point it out in the history of the Passion? I don't believe it was without significance. I believe the Gospel writers chose this moment in the sequence from, from, from Jesus' beating to the cross. They, they selected this moment because it was a very significant moment for them and for their churches, for the people to whom they were writing. Simon, it says, was coming out from the country. He was coming out from the field. Uh, perhaps... Uh, uh, perhaps he was uh, doing some day labor work as he also went back into Jerusalem throughout the week to celebrate the festivals. And he was caught unaware. It was a random point in time. He happened to be walking back into Jerusalem. And as he does, he's walking back in from the fields and, and there's a ruckus around him. And, and he looks and he sees Jesus carrying this cross. And Jesus stumbles and falls. And the Romans point to Him and say, You carry the cross. Simon was caught totally unaware. Had no idea what... Perhaps had no idea what was going on. And yet, at that moment, that unexpected moment, He picked up the cross. And He carried it for Jesus. We talk a lot about bearing the cross in our, in our church. We talk a lot about bearing the cross in our Christian life and what that looks like. What it means to, to carry the cross of Christ. It means, to, it means to be willing to suffer. It means to be willing to, to endure persecution. It means to be willing to do whatever it takes to give up oneself and to take upon oneself the idea of a humble servant. But equally so, it means to be ready to do so at all times. At all times. Simon was caught unaware, unexpected. And they pointed to him and said, carry this cross right now. And he picked it up and did so. I have a suspicion that Mark and Matthew and Luke put this into their Gospel stories to remind their churches to, and, and, and thus to remind us, let us be ready to carry the cross Whenever. Let us be ready to carry the cross whenever. It comes at unexpected moments, friends. It comes at unexpected times. When you're asked to be persecuted, when you're asked to suffer, when you're asked to, to deal with an unexpected health problem, all of a sudden it comes upon you. It comes upon you quickly when a phone call comes at midnight, someone's hurting, someone's in need. It comes at unexpected moments. Bearing the cross comes at unexpected moments. And Mark and the rest of the Gospel writers are saying, are you going to be ready like Simon when that moment comes? Are you ready to suffer? Indeed to die for your faith? 
to be with those in need at their darkest hour. Simon was that example. Simon was that example. Turn over to Acts chapter 11. I want you to see something else. Hold that spot in, your, in the Gospel of Mark and look at Acts chapter 11. There's something else significant, I would argue, about Simon. I believe that what Simon did on that fateful day in Jerusalem, I believe it, that story was told throughout all the land. I believe his example of carrying Jesus' cross was, was a piece of, of good news that traveled throughout all the land. This great Simon, a great exemplar of the faith. And sure enough, what do we see in Acts chapter 11 beginning in verse 20? It says this, Acts 11:20. It says some of the men who were then but some of them who excuse me, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Simon the Cyrenian, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Friends, we see here that people from Cyrene and Cyprus, but Cyrene, the home country of Simon, were among the first to reach out to the Greek-speaking Jews in Palestine, throughout the land of Israel. They were among the first to reach out, to have the evangelistic fervor to take the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. The Cyrenians were among the first to do so. And I have a suspicion that's due in large part to the man called Simon the Cyrenian who went home, told everybody he knew the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Simon's testimony, his example, sparked fervor in the community. And before Jerusalem before the Jerusalem Jews, before the Jerusalem Christians went out to proclaim the name of Christ, we see the Cyrenian Christians doing so. Simon was an example of the faith. And when you bear your cross, friends, when you bear the cross, others notice. Others take encouragement from that and they follow your example. Verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave Jesus wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but He did not take it. And when they crucified Him, they divided His garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified Him. And the inscription of His accusation was written above, the King of the Jews. In a mocking gesture toward Jesus, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh. This was not, uh, this was not as some speculate, uh, a kind of uh, narcotic uh, concoction. This was, not, this was not intended to show Jesus mercy. This was not a, a drug to ease the pain. It was, a, it was a ruining of wine. It was a mocking gesture as they held this up for Jesus to drink. Jesus did not take it. They divided His garments, the soldiers did, casting lots for them. That is to say, they, 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 they gambled His clothing away, deciding which, what aspects of His belongings each man should take. And this was in fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. David writes, They divide My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. 
significance of that, friends, it's, it's, it's too strong. It's too strong to, uh, too strong to be false. What David was writing in Psalm 22, as you read the entire, entirety of the psalm, we're going to look at it a little bit more in uh, detail throughout the rest of this message and next week. What David's words in Psalm 22, so very divinely inspired. So very divinely inspired. He knew in advance the dividing of Jesus' garments. And upon, upon the cross above Jesus was written a note, the King of the Jews. John indicates that Pilate wrote this inscription. And the fourth, the fourth Gospel writer also indicates that when Pilate wrote the King of the Jews, uh, the Jews, the Jewish leaders came up behind him and said, you know, don't write that. You should write instead that he claimed to be the King of the Jews. Or he said he was the King of the Jews. Pilate disregarded their request and said, hey, I've written what I've written. The King of the Jews. A, a title while written perhaps in a mocking tone, but which nevertheless contained the full truth of Jesus' person. He was the King of the Jews. Whether or not Pilate or the Jewish leaders wanted to recognize it. Verse 25, it says, Now it was the third hour and they crucified Him. Uh, if those that know your Bibles well will know that in John chapter 19, verse 14, it indicates that it was actually the sixth hour that Jesus was crucified. And so scholars uh, juggle these two and they say, well, wait a minute, we have Mark saying it was the third hour and John 19.14 says it was the sixth hour. Which is it? Uh, I don't find really a great problem here. Uh, in, a, in a day and age with uh, no wristwatch, um, when you look up at the sky and you try to make a determination of what time in the day it is, um, some people at this juncture would look up at the sun and say it's, it's mid-morning or late morning. Other people at this juncture would look up at the sky and say, oh, maybe it's early afternoon. That's the difference we have here. Mark says it was the third hour. John says it was the sixth hour. Uh, a lot of people say, well, see, the Bible contains errors. And I say, you know, look up at the sky and tell me what time it is. I think you're going to get a variety of answers here. And so we have Mark and John giving contrasting answers but which nevertheless I believe are in harmony with one another. It was sometime between the third and the sixth hour that Jesus was upon that cross. Verse 27. With Jesus they also crucified two robbers, one on His right and the other on His left. And so the Scripture was fulfilled which says, and He was numbered with the transgressors. Look back at verse 7 of Mark 15. Notice with Barabbas it says, and there was one named Barabbas one, uh, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. It's likely that the two that were to the left and to the right of Jesus were the other rebels that Barabbas had committed uh, treasonous acts with. So Jesus was crucified then, most likely with Barabbas' cohorts, his fellow rebels. He was crucified with, with insurrectionists. He was crucified on the charge of insurrection, Jesus was. That He had defied Rome. That He had claimed to be a king. And yet Jesus had done nothing of the like. The two to the left and to the right of Him were in fact insurrectionists. They were committing treasonous acts against Rome. But Jesus was not, and yet He was placed in the center. That is to say, in the spot of, of, 
of uh, highest prominence, uh, highest importance, to, to, to say, in fact, that this was the chief insurrectionist. Yet he was nothing of the sort. He had not once uh, advocated coming with a sword against Rome. Instead, Jesus, when He came for the first time, He didn't come with a sword. He came bringing salvation. He came bringing salvation. When He comes the second time, He will come with a sword. And He will come to judge those who do not believe in Him. Verse 29 to the end of our study. And those who passed by, they blasphemed Him wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross! Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with Jesus reviled Him. The people that walked by Jesus as He was put up on that cross, they they mocked Him. They continued to mock Him until His death. The first group mocked His uh, what they thought He had said about the temple. Jesus had predicted that the temple of His body would be destroyed and would be raised up three days later. And that prediction had been misinterpreted to mean the literal physical temple in Jerusalem. His contemporaries, as he spoke about the destruction of his temple, they took it to mean that Jesus was going to destroy the actual temple and rebuild it. And these charges continued to stick to Jesus throughout his final hour. It continued to be a major point of contention to those who contributed to Jesus' death. And they looked up at Jesus, the Jews did, uh, who, who had crucified Him. Both the leaders and the common people alike as they mocked Him, as they spat upon Him. They looked upon Him and they thought to themselves, this man, he claims to be the Messiah Son of God. The Messiah Son of God. And yet He, in His present position on the cross, that can't be. To them, these were irreconcilable ideas. That a man would claim to be Messiah, Son of God, and would find himself on the cross, that was not possible. Not possible in their thinking. Not possible in their theology. For them, no Christ could be crucified. For God would not permit His Christ to be condemned. To the Jews, no Christ could be crucified. How quickly they had forgotten some of their own Scriptures. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. How quickly they had overlooked some of their own holy writings that strongly suggested that the Messiah would not just be a person of great power and might, but that He would also be a suffering servant. One who would die to make reconciliation possible. It was these texts in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and many, many others that the people of Jesus' day largely ignored. 
And therefore they were blinded from realizing that the man upon the cross at Calvary was in fact the Messiah, Son of God they had all been looking for. One more time, the, the, the two different mocking comments. The first, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. That is to say, hey, if you have the power to destroy the temple, Jesus, if you have the power to destroy the temple and build it back up in three days, why do you not have the power to come down from that cross? Their charge against Jesus. If you can bring down this great temple which has taken years upon years to build, why can you not come down from this cross? And the religious leaders thereafter in verse 31 and 32, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. It's interesting that they said He healed others. Was that, was that, was that in truth that they said that or was that in mocking tone? Did they really believe that He had healed others? That He had healed the sick? That He had healed the blind? That He had delivered people from, from physical affliction? Maybe they did because some of them had seen some of those moments. So they say, look, you, you healed others. You delivered others. You claimed to forgive the sins of others. So what, what now? Why can't you save yourself? Why can't you come down from that cross? And the irony is, the irony is in all of this, the climax of this, the climax of this study is that He could. He could have. Jesus could have saved Himself. He really could have. Satan testified when he was tempting Jesus at the start of the Gospel of Matthew. Satan took Jesus upon the top, the pinnacle of the temple. And there he was with Jesus looking down and he said, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself over for I'm telling you, I know the Scriptures. Satan says, I remember what it says. It says, the Lord shall give His angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Satan knew the Scriptures well. He knew that the Lord's Christ would always and forever have the protection of God and His holy angels upon the request. Upon just the cry out for help. Jesus could have summoned all the holy angels to take Him and to protect Him and to keep Him from that moment of trial. All He had to do was cry out that that might occur and as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as God's Son, the one on His right hand, He would have had what He asked for. But Jesus, when He prayed for God to take away His cup, He didn't simply ask that God would remove the cup from Him. He asked, Lord, remove this cup of suffering from Me, but greater still, I would rather that I perform Your will not mine. God, I would wish that You would take away this moment from my life, Jesus says. But greater still, I wish that You would accomplish what You've asked of me. 
And so God granted Jesus' request. He granted Jesus' request that, that Jesus perform the will of God and not be saved from the cross. They cried out, why don't you save yourself? You've done so many other fantastic things. Why don't you save yourself right now? And yet Jesus knew in that moment upon the cross that had He saved Himself, He couldn't have saved others. Had He saved Himself, He couldn't have saved us. Our Lord in His darkest moment still had the presence of mind to remember that His death was accomplishing the salvation of all people. That by His blood, by His death, all mankind would have the opportunity to return to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so like a parent with a child and one life jacket left on the open water, that parent doesn't hesitate to give that life jacket to his or her child that they might be saved. It's instinctual. It's automatic. They don't question that decision. They know exactly who to save. So also our Lord, in a moment of greatest trial, His instincts told Him, I'm going to save the rest. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to save all those I've created. And I'm not going to save myself. Jesus Christ did this for you and for me. And I urge uh, all of us this morning, if we've never recognized the great and mighty and merciful sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that today you would recognize it. That today you would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The One who said, if I save myself, I will be unable to save the rest. That you would believe upon the One who gave up His life for you. And that you would have eternal life forever by that faith. If you've never done that this morning, I pray that you would make Jesus Christ the object of your faith. That you would look upon Him and say, yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And as you do, you will be entering forever into the Kingdom of God. Jesus' death not only paved the way for our salvation, but it's an example for us to follow. He is the healer he is the Deliverer. And we are to look upon Him and emulate that cross-bearing moment as we bring healing and help to others. As we be with those who are in suffering. As we pray for those who are hurting. Let us carry on the ministry that Christ carried on at the cross of Calvary. And that's precisely what we're going to do as we close this service with some time of strategic prayer for the needs of others in our church. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Son is our Savior. 
And we know that had He saved Himself at that moment in history, we would not have hope this day. We would be dead in our sins. We would be approaching certain death, eternal death, not just physical death. But Lord, we recognize that Your Son, He kept true to His instincts. Like a parent with his child, he knew instinctually who to save. He wanted to save the rest of us. He didn't want to save himself. He wanted to fulfill your will, your gracious and merciful will, that we, your people, might have a second chance at life forever with you. Father, I pray that no one would walk out of here having not expressed faith in your Son as their Savior. And Father, as they do, we rejoice because we know that you're bringing them into your kingdom right now forever. Father, may we as a people emulate Your Son's example. Emulate the example of Simon the Cyrenian who bore the cross at an unexpected moment. And when the late hour phone calls come, Father, and when the people that are near and dear to us are hurting or in need of help, may we be quick to answer those calls. May we be quick to reach out and to love those in need. For You've certainly shown that to us in Jesus our Lord. In His name we pray these things. Amen.